Fans and welcome to the latest edition of Match of the Week, the series within the Let Me Tell You Something podcasting empire, in which myself, your Let Me Tell You Something co-host Lorcan Mullen, and your other Let Me Tell You Something co-host Simon Cross, take it in turns to pick a match from the wide world of wrestling to discuss and put into uh, maybe a modern context, a different context, or just trying to understand its place within the large scope and history of professional wrestling. We're going for one that we've wanted to talk about for quite a while, haven't we, Simon? Not just because Meltzer keeps making five-star matches, so we keep saying it's going to be the next week's episode, and then it's not. Given a, a, a part of wrestling that we were, I don't want to say suffering through during the pandemic, but sometimes it felt like that, you could argue this show and this promotion, if you call it that, were the beginnings of what we came to know as cinematic wrestling. So, what are we talking about today, Simon? We're talking about a match that took place on an episode of Lucha Underground, and it's a match that takes up the whole episode, so we are effectively talking about an episode of Lucha Underground through the lens of this match. That match being between Pentagon Dark, evil Pentagon, and the Black Lotus Triad, although there are four matches as part of this gauntlet. Well, I dispute this. We already we argued about this, and you'd actually watch the show, but... Um... The fourth match doesn't get a bell ring. The ref gets chucked out of the ring before it can even take place. Mm. And looking at all of the listings, there's basically this is listed as a three-match episode. So even when you watched it before I have, Simon, you're still wrong and I'm still right. Uh, well, each to their own on that. <laughs> each to their own facts. Okay. I, but look, that seems to be the discourse on the internet. In terms of each of their own facts, so I might as well embrace it. Right, yeah. So where were you on January the 6th? (laughs) I know they did it on purpose, but when Daniel Garcia said January the 6th, that's the reason why he sided with Jericho. And the whole crowd went, hang on, what? (laughs) (laughs) Then he explained why. I mean, it was a coincidence, but that millisecond. (laughs) Oh, I digress. Anyway, the people who were at January 6th, a lot of them probably wouldn't appreciate Lucha Underground. I mean, you're not right. It's true. Yeah. But he shouldn't say it. (laughs) (laughs) I was always frustrated that I never got around to properly watching Lucha Underground. I saw clips here and there. But this is the first full episode I've got to watch from start to finish. I wanted to watch an episode either side and just didn't have time to get around to it. But the funny thing about Lucha Underground is that I think of all the wrestling... That you could go back to. I think this is the one that you could genuinely, in the modern context, binge watch. Because it is essentially a television program before it is a wrestling promotion. Mm. It existed as long as there was television going on. And it looks like a show. And it's not treating wrestling 100% like it's a sport or it's part of an existing world. It's within its own universe really where there's i think that there's even like science fiction and horror elements and supernatural yeah parts which in fairness as i've said that there is that in pro wrestling to this day but and before literature underground there was that and before literature underground but this is one where it feels like it's a self-contained universe yeah although to be fair again matt striker 
Oh boy. We'll reference other wrestlers and other matches and worlds outside of pro wrestling, like mm. other promotions. Because I did watch clips of another thing that was a I quit match, but it was a no mass match between Sexy Star and another female wrestler. Ah. And yeah. Matt Stryker does bring up Magnum TA and Tully Blanchard. But there were aspects of it that allowed me to elevate my level of suspension of disbelief, like it was a level above it yeah. than there would be for WWE. So when I get annoyed at them implying that there are actual supernatural elements to The Fiend or something, mm. that bothers me. But it wouldn't bother me so much in this match. And also in this match, it didn't bother me, the essential presentation of men and women wrestlers as on an equal par. Because it's sort of along the lines of, you know, when I just recently watched John Wick, there's women fighting in that and utterly fine like in that heightened cinematic world yeah so the idea of these women being presented as somewhat equal to penta Mm. made it feel less uncomfortable which is what i can feel with certain men versus women matches and the way that they're booked this feels like a character from like a horror movie or something along those lines with pentagon Versus three women from a kung fu action film. Yeah. So they, they're even dressed like characters you could imagine in a Bruce Lee. Because they're not wearing the popular Joshi designs of like multicolors and frills and, and all sorts of elaborate designs. Or, you know, Kyrie Hojo is not wearing co- pirate cosplay or anything. No. They are, you know, sleek black leather clad the black lotus they're dressed like their moniker <laughs> yeah but it also i imagine that because robert rodriguez is a, a an influence on the show or even not not necessarily him but someone else within the show is will will be making a visual reference to a classic kung fu movie mm. with that with that apparel that they're wearing i would think oh yeah yeah the wacky comic book side of wrestling just amped up to 11 and you're right the fact it was seasonal as well made it bingeable and I'm, I'm in the same boat as you. It's always something I wanted to watch, but just never got round to or could never locate. I think for a lot of people in America, it wasn't very easily accessible as seasons went on. But in the UK in particular, I don't think it ever had... A, I was looking it up on Wikipedia, and I don't think it ever had an official UK broadcasting company. So you had to go elsewhere to get your hands on it anyway. I find that weird that it never did get picked up in the UK. Especially in this day and age where content is king. And, you know, it would have been something different to try. And, like, wrestling but not wrestling. But maybe it was the Mexican imagery of it. There's not a lot of Mexican film or television that's made any real big cultural imprint on this country. I don't think Robert Rodriguez movies are much of a draw. I mean... It seemed like the aesthetic had some elements of Breaking Bad to it. Sort of like that Tex-Mex style sort of thing. Yeah, although... It was Albuquerque. Breaking Bad takes place in New Mexico. What's the show called? Not Hell's Angels. Sons of Anarchy. Sons of Anarchy, which starred a British actor, Charlie Hunman, in the main role. Yeah. But you do get a lot of that as well in this show with sort of the Mexican... Is it Aztec or Mayan imagery? I'm never quite sure. Well, the Mayans and the Aztecs both were Mexican. Yeah, so it might be a combination of both or one or the other. We just don't know it. Uh, actually, what is curious is, do you know who was maybe the key creative focus? Maybe the, what you would t- term the showrunner of the Lucha Underground program? No, go on. It was a guy who worked in WWE Creative for a number of years, and he did appear on screen as a character. 
Do you remember one Big Dick Johnson? Oh, Krista Joseph. The heavy set gentleman who would dance around with oil over himself because that's how Vincent Mann's sense of humor works. <laughs> yeah, he hung out with DXs a lot, didn't he? Like when DX came back and were even worse. Well, not even worse, but just it was like watching your dad tell knock knock jokes. But yeah, he is a credited at least writer on the show, I believe. I don't know if he was the key. Well, he's got credits on 127 episodes of the show, so yeah, it would look like he was, if not the main creative focus of it, at least a creative focus of it. Oh God, now he's making uh, Love Island for America. <laughs> Go chase that paper, I guess. And... It's a fascinating career, really, flipping between WWE and Lucha Underground and the other shows that he's got producing credits on are Kids Say the Darndest Things, Mm-mm. Paradise Hotel, Celebrity Big Brother, American Grit, Marriage Boot Camp, Reality Stars, <laughs> Flipping Vegas, which I assume is not like some... One who doesn't like swearing, complaining about Nevada's main city, but... Basically, imagine, like, Homes Under the Hammer, just just a bit more showy. American reality shows, the titles are so close to 30 Rock parody that there's almost... It's one of those ones, it's like, not The Onion, like, not 30 Rock. <laughs> Redneck Island. Oh, God, yeah. Or, um... Dogs in the City. Oh... God, what what was it? Was it Milf Island, the one? Yeah. That was it. The one that Will Ferrell starred in was, it was called something like Bitch Hunter. <laughs> Amazing. What's funny is he's got 88 writer credits, but they're like bragging rights. Hell in a cell. Over the limits. <laughs> so it's hard to say. That's a bit of CV padding, do we not think? But I will say to this guy, if he is the guy that's behind it, he has an impressive vision and obviously a love for wrestling, but a desire to take it somewhere else. Yeah. That maybe Vince wasn't willing to go to. But sometimes I look at what Lucha Underground is and I kind of think maybe Vince would like wrestling to be more like that. You know, because everyone always complains about the lack of consistency in, in so much of it. And... Vince doesn't really care. And he does obviously like the big brash productions. Like the Undertaker's always clearly been his favorite creation. Mm. And that was all about spectacle and special effects and cinematic before there was cinematic. Like if you look at the old Undertaker promos where he'd be, he'd he'd not do them that much actually in the ring or on a stage. He'd do it in his workstation where he's building coffins and the like with Mm. Paul Bearer alongside him. And later on, when he's doing all the lightning bolts and everything in the dark Ministry of Darkness, I think that's the stuff Vince likes doing more than anything. That's Vince as a Broadway impresario. Well, Vince does like pageantry, and, and this is pageantry in spades. Well, maybe if Vince had bothered to watch any TV for the last 20 years, maybe he would have been... In, like I said, I feel like if you watch Lutra, the people behind Lutra Underground have definitely watched a fair few Robert Rodriguez movies and have have watched Breaking Bad and probably Sons of Anarchy and Westerns Mm. and so forth. And also, maybe there is some inspiration behind those El Santo movies. You know, we watch one where, the one we watch where he's fighting Frankenstein's monster and the like. Yeah. It's not a million miles away from what Lucha Underground is, but just as a grittier, nasty alternative R-rated almost action to it, as reflected in this match. But that's kind of fun, though. Like, the whole difference of it 
is what made it stand out when it was first broadcast into the wrestling world. And I think that's why, like you said earlier, it's something that, because it is seasonal and because it is its own encapsulated universe, it can be binged and maybe this will stand the test of time, like in terms of like, you know, you could possibly even watch this 50 years later and be like, okay. Because there's beginning, middle and end to each season. There are payoffs at the season, but they also will use the wrestling formats within there. Like there is an episode that's dedicated to an Iron Man match between Johnny Mundo, aka John Morrison, and Prince Puma, aka Ricochet. They had a Royal Rumble-esque match, but in that one, it wasn't being thrown over the top rope. It was like pinfall or submission. Mm. And... It is this wide array of characters, and the one that seemed to get the biggest response out of everyone was Pentagon. Yeah. And you can see exactly why in this match, and as I say, when I get frustrated at what some of Pentagon's stuff is in AEW, when I watch the Pentagon of this match, I'm like, ah, I want this Pentagon. Oh, I know. Pentagon Dark is a lot more fun than Penta Oscuro. It's like their implication that that's what this is. How many times does he do Sierra Miedo in this whole match? Once? Twice? Once or twice. It's it's not a lot. It, like now he'd smash that out in about three minutes. <laughs> Bless him. And, and that's him playing to the crowd and everything. And he's got him over. And he is always over when he goes into an AEW show. And if we get to see him in London, I'll be going crazy for Penta and... Ray Phoenix as much as everyone else, and I'll look forward to doing Sierra Miedo. Yeah. But this Pentagon is just one of the coolest guys that there's ever been in wrestling. I think it's just a combination of the mask and the costume is cool. Incorporating face paint to it as well. Yeah. I think is really great because that allows him to have be more expressive, like his his mouth and and also the contact lenses that he uses as well that kind of shine in the darkened lighting. Mm. Really put across again like this almost demonic possession that he has in this darker alter ego. Yeah. And in in the storyline he he's got away from Vampiro's control, albeit by nearly killing Vampiro. <laughs> Many have tried and somehow still they've failed to kill this man. Yeah. <laughs> The Black Lotus triad have been sent after him by Black Lotus because he got in Black Lotus's way at some point and, and cost her somewhere. He broke her arm. Yeah. And he also broke the other guy that turns up at the end of this match. I've got it written down here. King Kerno. Querno. No, he's, that's not what he's called. El Dragon Azteca. Oh, that's it. El Dragon Azteca. Sorry. Yeah, they mentioned yeah. King, yeah, King Querno, but I got that mixed up. Yeah, so he's just been a man that kind of recklessly is going around breaking everyone's arm for his own perverse joy of it. Mm. And it's this is the chickens coming home to roost, essentially. Mm. That Black Lotus finds these three women to do her bidding, essentially. And it's going to be a gauntlet of him going through all four of the triad plus Black Lotus herself. Yeah. But we'll we'll get to that. We'll get to that little dispute. And so we've got these three great Joshi wrestlers who had yet, I think this was like their first real appearance on American soil, or Mexican soil, I guess. Yeah. In their careers, I believe. This is before Kyrie Hojo and Io Shirai both end up going to WWE. Mm. Um, Mio Iwatani has not turned up, at least in WWE. I don't know if she's ever done anything in AEW. Not to my knowledge. But obviously, as was always the case, Japanese women wrestlers were always pushing the envelope, not just for women's wrestling, but for wrestling in general. Whereas women's wrestling, as we've said in the past, was always almost like a decade behind the style of wrestling right up until really the NXT 
four horsewomen, Paige and Emma, and just the the pushing of it more. And there's still limitations to the way that women in WWE wrestle, the ones that are trained in-house. Yeah. But that's just the nature of the WWE's in-house training style as well. I mean, I watch Bianca Belair, and as amazing as she is, there are moments where it's just like, there are flaws to what she does and the way she behaves or moves in the ring, where it's like, yeah, that's just the in-house WWE style, and you've never been taught... Anything different. Anything differently. Yeah. And so there's, I, I sometimes feel like there's a lack of an independence of thought in a lot of, um, not just women wrestlers, but anyone really that comes up through the NXT banner. Mm. That there's sometimes maybe a lack of creativity within themselves because it's not allowed to flourish as much. Uh, you're referring to like true, true homegrowns, not ones, not like the indie um, Galacticos of black and gold. Yeah, I'm exactly talking about that. The in-house people, the ones that are plucked from either early into an independent career or from college sports, you know, your Brom Breakers and the like. Well, Belair. Collegiate athlete. And Belair, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Belair and... You know, there's not many that have got... Like, who are the best wrestlers overall to come purely WWE developmental system? I'm not sure. I mean, I think Dolph Ziggler was often seen as, like, the best one. The one that looked like he could work outside of WWE just as easily as inside of WWE. Yeah, I suppose that's true. Because he was OVW, wasn't he? I don't yeah. know if Chad Gable ever had any pro wrestling outside of WWE. <sighs> but again, they're the ones with amateur wrestling backgrounds as that's well, That's true. They? Yeah, they're very deep. One collegiate and one went to the Olympics. But yeah, deep, deep amateur experience. But yeah, to this day, if you take every woman wrestler, and I include all the best ones, including like Sasha Banks and Becky Lynch and Charlotte Flair, and I think as far as what they can do in ring, Asuka is still a step above all of them. Oh yeah. And Kyrie Sane and Io Sky... I've always been slightly held back for what they can do in the WWE, I think. And maybe they've been... A, Asuka was kind of given a, so much creative freedom that they couldn't not let her be who she was mm. in the ring. But by the time that Io and Kyrie came along, maybe they were more a bit more controlling. But again, Kyrie Hojo has been literally main-evented WWE pay-per-views and the like. and so, Yeah. Which is so crazy when you look, when you think about it. Um, brilliant. I mean, I love Kyrie Sane in many different ways. <laughs> Big fan of pirates, he is. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And she's the one that opens the match. And it does seem like it's a tearing, essentially. Mm-hmm. That she's like the starter and maybe the weakest of the three. And I think that's probably they're going on the ones like physically. She is the smallest one. Yeah. The one that you're expecting the least from. And then Iwatani comes in as Yure, and she is taller, and is the only one that does, like, a lucha sequence with Penta. Yeah. And then Io comes along, and she's sort of, like, the best combination of all of them. She's got, like, some more size to her, and force to her, and seemingly more of a killer instinct, I think, than the other two. Mm. But yeah, as we say, what's great about it is that they are treated as equals, essentially. They hit Penta, and Penta gets hurt, and Penta, when he hits them, he is not holding anything back. Oh, no. Um, obviously, there's always, like I said, my problem sometimes with men versus women wrestling is that the sexual undercurrent that can be there. And also just the mm. the bad vibes I feel with a man fighting a woman, harming a woman mm. in, in a semi-real-life situation, which is what wrestling is still presented as, for the most part, but not in this show. Yeah. 
But with this one, it is a case that... And there are allusions to that at some points. Penta, the, the chest chop, which I think is like a trademark movie does on everyone. Yeah. But there are, like, there's a moment, I think, with at least the I- Iwatani, where he literally sort of, like, almost caresses her hair as he's brushing it back before yeah. chopping her across the chest. I think that's just more of a patronising thing than it is a, you know, sexual thing. Maybe, but then when he swings a steel chair to Io Shirai's ass and then licks the seat of the chair afterwards. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. <sighs> But, uh, I don't know, it's the whole... <sighs> I mean, he's the heel. And he's meant to be this, like, monstrous character with, like, no compassion. Well, on paper he is. But look at the crowd responses he gets. <laughs> he's like the heel that everyone loves. The crowd themselves are kind of characters within the show. On the ringside area, they're all sort of equally lit. And I do love that darkish hue and glow that makes them look really good like especially with like pentas looks great with that lighting as well yeah and again it also emphasizes the seedy underground underbelly nature of the show like it shouldn't be happening it's happening in the darkened warehouse probably on the outskirts of some dodgy part of a major crime area well that's just <laughs> dario that's just the kind of guy that dario is like the the kayfabe uh, owner of lucha underground in fact, it's Dario's office that uh, EO dives off of, basically. I, I've wrote it down as balcony, but that's a misnomer. It is actually the roof of his office. Because it's within the universe, like you say, it's just like, oh, that's just that's just how it is. Because it's not trying to be conventional wrestling, you can just explain away so many things which would jar in conventional wrestling by going, well, that's just our world. That's fine. Yeah, well... Well, I always said what always frustrates me about TNA and why I never got into it is it never felt like it was presenting enough of an alternative to the WWE. Yeah. That it was just a a slightly lower quality version. Yeah. And they had those moments where they did some interesting stuff. Again, I can't remember if it was like pre or during Lucha Underground, but do you remember that one episode that opens with Eric Bischoff in the ring playing the guitar? (laughs) And the, the lighting's all sort of different and the opening shot and that was like i mean that's ultimately a guy getting to indulge his own himself which is like the worst elements of old eric bischoff you know like mm. eric bischoff on a harley davidson challenging vince mcmahon to a fight and- road road wild is definitely the uh the, the the worst indulgence of um eric bischoff the wrestlers didn't want to be there it's just eric that did the bikers weren't that interested in the wrestling it was just Eric. As we, because we have a uh, four match of the week, obviously covered that. So we've seen that firsthand. And you can, listeners can go back and listen to that episode specifically. But there was also one thing I did like that they did with the backstage segments, because it always drove me crazy about WWE doing the backstage stuff and just people behaving like there wasn't a camera right in front of them. Yeah. What I liked with, at least for a short period of time when Impact were doing it, they had the camera, like, far away, like it was something from The the Office, mm. giving, like, a reality show feel to it, where it's trying to find stuff out, and the people being filmed don't know they're being filmed, and it's not them ignoring a camera that's clearly two feet in front of them. It's because a camera's, like, in the room next door. It's the further end of a darkened part of the backstage area. They did it perfectly not long ago as a one-off in WWE, when you saw MVP and The Miz talking, but you couldn't hear what they were saying, and it was filmed from quite far away. And then it was like it turned out that The Miz had colluded 
with MVP to make sure he was champion with the premise that he would offer Bobby Lashley the first title shot and then try to dodge him like the plague, basically. Yeah, yeah. And then, obviously, it's how everyone found that out after the event. But they, 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 they had indicated that something was going to happen, but you didn't actually have to have it spelled out to you. You just had to see the men talking without hearing what they're saying. But the internal logic of Lucha Underground is that we're seeing the wrestling presentation that Matt Stryker and Vampiro are commentating on. So it's almost like that's the show that the characters think they're in. Yeah, But what we're seeing is not just that show, we're seeing the backstage scenes. We're seeing Matanza in a locked area trying, like, being fed by his brother and everything. We're seeing Dario Cueto forming bonds and and breaking relationships and whatever. We see Black Lotus and El Dragon Azteca discussing their shared issue with Pentagon and so on and so forth. There's one of the sections which is great, and at the end, it's the, I think it's like the Croc guy, and he's just cut his hands are covered in blood, and you just see Miss, the Rey Mysterio question mark on the wall. Dario Cueto looking very disturbed as how have you painted that? It's just you in there. What's going on? Do you know who it was that was playing Matanza at this time? Go on, who was it? Jeff Cobb. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> That was also with the Prince Puma thing being ricochet. I remember there was a uh, PWG show where he's wearing the Prince Puma tights, yellow and red. And he's against against Marty Skrull. And Marty, in the middle of the match, because it's PWG, says, Wait a minute, I know where those tights come from. (laughs) You're him! You're put... And then Ricochet's trying to stop him and the crowd goes, No, he isn't! See, there's a world where, I mean, we've talked about how PWG is like wrestlers playtime, but there is like an element of more realism to it. So the silliness in there, because it doesn't bleed into other promotions and the way that PWG puts out its product, that works as self-contained silliness. I guess that's like, the wackiness of that is, it's a different kind of wackiness though, but it's the sort of the closest parallel I can think to this, where it's... yeah. It's like, that's the comedy TV version of pro wrestling. Yeah. PWG is almost the naked gun eye version of pro wrestling. Yeah. The 30 Rock of pro wrestling. Whereas this is, I don't know, the Game of Thrones? The Well, this is the cable drama version of wrestling. Yeah. And I've said, like, the only other thing that made me think, like, how would I present wrestling if I was to do it a TV show? And I think I've said this before, I for a brief period I was going into the local comic shop in Birmingham, and there were WWE comics. I don't know if they're still going. And it would be a combination of current storylines, but also famous past storylines. Yeah. And so there was one that I remember reading, and it was like, it starts with Ric Flair winning the Royal Rumble, going and cutting the promo, this is the greatest moment of my life, with a tear in my eye, etc. And then the comic book goes Beyond that, where after the promo's been cut, Bobby Heenan and Ric Flair and Mr. Perfect go into the locker room. Ric Flair showers, and whilst he's in the shower, Heenan and Perfect are strategizing over what they're going to do next. Yeah. And it's just that like that bridging gap between where we went from there to later parts of the storyline. Yeah. Or I remember there was another one. It's like, what's going on in NXT? And Triple H is on the phone with someone mm. that we see in NXT. And then he hangs up the phone. 
and you see that he's been in a restaurant. The reveal is that he's been in the restaurant with Samoa Joe. Yeah. I think this was when Samoa Joe was brought in. Was it to attack Seth Rollins? That was like his first debut on Raw? I think so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So again, it was just doing that connection between them. So if I was to do, like, a different version of wrestling, it would be kind of like Lucha Underground, but without the fantastical element of it, where it is about, like, the life of being a wrestler as well. So you see them hitting the towns and going to the gym, and they have reflective character moments where they're talking to each other about their situations. And you can do more about some... Like, imagine doing the Randy Savage Hulk Hogan storyline, but with scenes where Randy Savage is at home with Miss Elizabeth and discussing things and yeah, and so on, or, or Randy getting something the wrong way in a strategy meeting he has with Hulk Hogan when they're going to the gym together mm. or something along those lines. Like, presenting it as if, what is it like for the 22 hours of that day and the six other days of the week yeah. where we don't see these guys on dynamite or on raw or on smackdown how do we get between the two things basically yeah Yeah. and again lucha underground is again probably the closest that there's come to doing that did get that as well to be fair wwe did that for a while with those sort of vice documentary style following one of those wrestlers for a week like there was one where they followed samoa joe around for a week yeah and it was during the whole wendy storyline and they do a bit where he's backstage and aj sees him and they start arguing (laughs) and he's like save it for the show and everything I like that, like giving us more of those elements of it. Like like doing a show where you explain how these wrestlers who hate each other have been going through the same entrance only a few minutes. Yeah. Who's having to do what to make sure that both guys don't interact and start fighting before they both go out the, yeah, to the ring? I don't you know. Mean. Is there security behind both doors or what How, how the situation is managed you know? like backstage, yeah. Yeah. So again, like taking the more realistic thing. But to get back to this match... What we're getting is traditional, a, a traditional gauntlet wrestling match. And again, as I say, there's no real accounting for it. Three women against a guy, I guess, except maybe you could argue with the gauntlet style. Yeah. But to get back to Pentagon as well, one of the things about Pentagon that was so cool was that he was a luchador, but he wasn't a luchador doing the things that you stereotypically associate a luchador with for the past 25 years. Mm. He does some high-flying moves, but more often than not, his whole thing is a more grounded, aggressive, strike-based wrestling. Yeah. You know, his kicks and his chops and everything. And then, like, his other finishing moves, like the package pile driver. Yeah. But obviously, his main finishing move, like, it's it's limb work, isn't it? Yeah. Lucha's got as long a tradition of mat wrestling as it has anything else. So that was a an art form within itself. It's called La Luta, or something along those lines. Yeah. And, obviously, when you watch the Atlantis-Villiano match that's often cited as the greatest lucha libre match of all time that's a couple of dives at the start and then the rest of it is pinfall combinations or submission moves Mm. and penta is part of more of that tradition and the fact that his finishing move is such a clever and simplistic and actually relatively safe i think move to do but believable that it's a move that like instantaneously breaks everyone's arm who he does it to yeah where he's like got one trapped in like a hammerlock between his leg and the other one he just pulls back and the snapping motion of it is what makes it so believable as a a break yeah and the way that you sell it as well and everyone sells it to perfection and the other thing i love and they do it in these two matches i don't know if they do it in every other penta match but i wouldn't be surprised if they do that the second he hits the hold the ref calls for the bell yeah. Like, he's not waiting for a submission. He's not waiting for Pence to do anything else. Well, it's kind of along the lines of... There's that famous finish to one of the... Frank Mir and Tim Sylvia, 
where Tim Sylvia has Frank Mir up and Frank Mir's got him in like an armbar. Yeah. And then suddenly Herb Dean jumps in and says, it's over, it's over, it's over. And Sylvia's going, why? Why is it over? I didn't tap. Yeah. And then you watch the replay and you can see the bone literally break. Ah. You see like the, you know, the protuberance in the, in yeah. the arm from him breaking it. And that's what Herb spotted. So Herb saving Sylvia from himself. Yeah, that's what Sylvia said in hindsight afterwards. Like, like everyone booed the decision, and then they did the action replay, and you see it, and everyone goes, "Oh!" <laughs> <laughs> like, all right, good spot, Herb. He's he's cool. He's cool. <laughs> so I like that as the logic of the finish that it is instantaneous, and when Doku and Yure come back out at the end, they are both like, but they're not got like a sling, which might have been a bit. I know that would have been quite a cool thing, but maybe you want to make them still look kind of more badass that they yeah. made the sacrifice to wear him out so that Io Shirai was able to get the win at the end. Yeah, and then Black Lotus was then able to get her, her hands on him. Yeah, in a non-match, in his weakened state. Yeah, and that's the whole thing. Like this is the end of a long, long multiple. I think multiple seasons arc, really. Yeah. Of Penta breaking everyone's arm that not only does he get it done to him, he gets it done to him on both arms. That Lotus gets her revenge and then Azteca comes along afterwards and gets his revenge on the other arm. And the other thing I really love as well is that they maintain the Mexican element by having the wrestlers speak in their native language and having it be subtitled. Yeah. I really love that as well. That after he beats Doku, he he then gets on the mic and just says, bring them all on. I can't remember yeah. what it was, but but it just gets subtitled. And I thought that was a really cool touch as well. Well, it's just much better that way. One of the things that precludes Penta to an American audience, I guess, is his English strength on the mic. And they've tried to cover it up with uh, Penta Says in AEW. Well, it, it, it is what it is. But because he's in this universe, it's like, well, someone will subtitle me. It's fine. I, well, he doesn't think that, but... Again, it's like the post-production aspect to the program. Yeah! Like, let Penta be Penta and we'll fix the rest <laughs> in edit, basically. So, yeah, I, it's just a great brawl. And uh, as you say, like, both sides are just utterly ruthless to one another and they, they don't give a quarter unturned. Like, when Io Shirai batters Penta at the start and then Penta gives her everything that she gave him, like, throwing him into the chairs, hitting him with a chair, re- removing the padding on the outside. She does a body slam. He does a... I can't remember what he does, but he does something to her. On the outside. Oh, Death Valley Driver. That's it. And they all do such a great job of selling it. And I do appreciate that they didn't make the Japanese wrestlers do just kung fu kicks or anything, which might have been the stereotypical way to go about it. Yeah. Like I said, Mayu Iwatani does like a lucha sequence ending with an arm dragging Penta to the outside and everything. They even do like the the, the Okada thing of like, Yoshirai literally starts taunting him with little kicks to his head. Yeah, <laughs> like come on, get up, get up, you bitch, <laughs> or a perro, I suppose. Would be yeah, the appropriate way to say it there. And Penta then does it to her afterwards. It is just really well put together, good comic book fun, basically, isn't it? Again, it's not something I almost feel like I could star rate really, because again, it's like it's three separate matches or uh, as it's presented as well. So, what would you rate each of them? But like they're better collectively. Yeah, of what it's saying over the course of it, just these women coming together and. Going all out for him and him not taking a back step either. He hits them every bit as hard as he can. Yeah. I, the the spot where he 
catches Shirai with a low drop kick when they're about to do a handspring in the ropes. Yeah, that's... Oof. Or after Kari Hoji hits the top rope elbow the first time when she does it the second, he captures it and turns it into the arm break. It's yeah. always brilliant when you can do that, when you can do someone else's trademark move and turn it into your trademark move. Yeah. I always love how you can do something like that. Like when John Cena had CM Punk in the STF and CM Punk was able to turn it into the Anaconda Vice. Yeah. AJ Styles and Randy Orton with the phenomenal forearm to RKO combo. Well, any of those Randy Orton RKOs from a like a trademark move. Yeah. Or when Owen Hart gets Brett into a sharpshooter, but then Brett is able to reverse it into his own sharpshooter. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is just a lot of fun. This is a great episode of, of wrestling. And I feel like it's something that would appeal to people who don't like wrestling that much because it presents it in a slightly different way. Oh, absolutely. Yeah like a woman might find it more interesting because of the way that the women and men are presented as equals in this match. Yeah. Apparently I was reading up some reviews and they said the problem was they say that and in the ring there's that logic but then on commentary Matt Stryker's like how amazing for this woman to make it with the men <laughs> whilst also saying oh men and women fight equally in this world you know it's like mm. well, which one is it you know. To be fair I can't speak for other episodes but in this episode he's doing a lot of work because Vampiro is not giving him much at all. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think Vampiro's ever been much of a commentator anyway, and obviously you've seen some of the mess that those two had with Triple Mania, and like yeah. Vampiro very loudly farting during commentary, or <laughs> refusing to get into the ring until they play his music, yeah, and all those, or, or saying, uh, accusing Matt Stryker of being part of the Me Too movement at one point. Oh. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, that's how good this match and this show is. It made Matt Stryker tolerable. <laughs> I wondered when that was coming. <laughs> Just put the boot in one more time. So who do you think's got the better move? Do you prefer the Kyrie Sane elbow drop or the Io Shirai moonsault? You had to oh, pick one. Christ, that's like choosing between your favourite children. Um, well, it's not exactly like that, Simon. Let's... I'm going to go for the Kyrie elbow drop. Yeah, me too. I think it's also because it's such a tiny woman doing something so cool. <laughs> yes, yeah. And doing something that everyone does, but putting her own touch to it. Yeah, you know? exactly. Like The thing is, and it's not EO's fault, but like everyone does a moonsault now. So you're like, eh, elbow drops stand out more. But that's the thing, though, isn't it? Again, it's like we were saying how great Kazuchiro Okada is to have you go apeshit over a drop kick. Yeah. Guys were doing top rope elbow drops in the 80s. Guys were doing moonsaults in the 90s. But if you do it so well, it still gets crazy big pops with Kyrie, It's like the movement and the logic of it and mm. the height that she gets despite how small she is and the accuracy of the elbow and the fact that it looks different to everyone else's elbow drop. Yeah. With Shirai, it's really the grace of the moonsault. Like, it, she gets, like, a perfect vertical at one point. Like, she's fully straight upside down during mid-flight. Mm. Whereas other ones that do moonsaults, they can kind of go a bit... Even Shawn Michaels' moonsault wasn't 100% brilliant. No, uh, no. At times. It, it did what it had to do, or the one, two, three kids. Uh, Kurt Angle's moonsault was actually quite impressive. It's just the first time he did it, kind yeah. of... <laughs> cause problems afterwards yeah but yeah I mean it's no surprise that Shirai and Sane were able to get work in it's weird I keep saying Io Shirai but I keep saying Kairi Sane I don't know what that says mm. but... and they've had success I mean Io Sky uh, 
it's always been as part of damage control on the main roster, but I'm glad that... And that was one of the first real positives of Triple H taking over, like almost immediately Dakota Kai and Io Sky, who we thought were both leaving, yeah. turned up on, on the main roster and have been a part of the big fit women's storyline for like the... ever since. Yeah. That was a recent revelation that uh, Dakota Kai was this close to signing a stardom contract and Io would have gone with her. But instead, this got pitched and they stayed here. Yeah, so I, I definitely would love to do more Lucha Underground. Maybe years from now, we'll do a, a, a binge watch review along the lines of our World of Sport review, but a lot more. <laughs> Not along the same lines, exactly. <laughs> Insofar as we're covering a TV show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, if season two of that it. comes back, oh, God. <laughs> watch Lucha Underground. See what, <laughs> see where you were going wrong. Yeah, yeah. I mean, God, I just remember actually that Way Barrett was even seedier looking than Barrio <laughs> Puerto's place. He was in the steam pipe drunk trunk distribution venue for any West Wing fans out there. They they did what they well. It was what it was. If you want to hear us gradually lose our minds over ten weeks, go back and listen to those episodes. Oh dear me! Or don't for your own sake. One thing that uh, Dario Cueto and Wade Barrett, or what was he called, Stu Bennett back then, have in common, was the responsibility they held, which will be the subject of our next episode. We're going back to the classic Let Me Tell You Something, where we talk about one particular topic in pro wrestling. And Simon, what is that topic going to be for our next one? Uh, CD business. No, no, it's not CD business, (laughs) man. It's all pharmacy figures. From Jack Tunney to Hornswoggle. We'll cover them all. Well, we won't cover them all, but we'll cover a fair few of them. And see what role they hold in pro wrestling and whether maybe their time has come and gone or is more important than ever. Well, we shall see. We shall see. But until then, Simon, if people want to get in touch with you with more recommendations of standout Lucha Underground episodes that you should watch or other means of getting your hands on the whole show, how can they do so? People can get in touch with me on Twitter. I'm Simon Cross. Free, free for the number of women in the triad. My name's Lorcan Munn, and that's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for the A at the start of Aztec, N for the N at the end of Mayan. That's my Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, letterbox. If you're putting out gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. LMTYspod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. But there's nothing left to say at this point, except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. My name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a great week. Until the next week.